All right. Good evening, everyone. Well, welcome to the Parsha class. Oh, we had, we had it last week, didn't we? Yes. yes. We did. No TV last week. Yeah, no TV last week. Okay. So, Baruch Hashem. So, I'm going to start off with a question. No, I'm going to start with a story. First, a story. That was sent over by a chassid when he was in the Russian army. And uh, they know the loyalty of Russian soldiers to the Tsar was legendary. So one chassid once said, I once saw a Russian soldier being whipped. And what was his crime? While standing watch on a Russian winter night, his feet had frozen to his boots. And that's a crime. And you get whipped in the Tsar's army. And why did the commander whip him? He said like this, Had you remembered the oath you took to the Tsar, the memory would have kept you warm. So this chassid said, For 25 years, this incident inspired my service of Hashem. Okay, so we'll come back to that story. You'll see why I'm telling you this story. But let's start with another interesting question, one of these great trivia questions. What is the first conversation between a husband and wife that is recorded in the Torah? No, you gotta look in the text, it has to say, he said to her or she said to him, now, obviously, we know that Adam and Chava must have spoken to each other, but does the Torah record any words that Adam said to Chava or Chava said to Adam? You got to tell me, you know, what is the words that were said? Because just to guess, just to guess. Abraham said to Sarah, I... I, I now I know that you are uh, beautiful. Very good. How'd you get such a fast answer on that? I'm You're what? I'm listening. You're listening. Good for you. Good for you. Do you repeat that? Sorry. Okay. Now that uh, that they yeah. got the answer, now I can give out the sheets. Because if I gave out the sheet, that would have. What was the answer? Well, we'll say it again. We can look right at the sheet now. Okay, just pass it around. This week's Parsha. And let's just read these four psukim. There was a famine in the land. And Avram went down to Egypt. To live there as a stranger. Because the famine was very severe in the land. And when Avram... When Avram he crave. Let's see what that means exactly. I mean, the English does a terrible job when he was about to enter Egypt. He said to Sarai, his wife, He no yodati. Behold, now I know. Ki isha yefas mare ot. That you are a beautiful woman. That's not bad. That's not bad. But he continues. 
And if the Egyptians will see you, and they'll say, this is his wife. And they will kill me. And you, they will let live. So Imrina, so say now, you are my sister. Why? So it should go well with me because of you. And that I may remain alive thanks to you. Okay. So on the simple level, what is Avram saying to Sarai? What are these first words that a husband says to his wife? He acknowledges. Now he acknowledges she's very beautiful. Okay. And then you'll be desirable toward that for, from so the resistance. Yeah. And that we're going to have to. I want to check myself. Keep going, <laughs> keep and talking. If, and if we were to recognize our relationship as husband and wife, uh, I can be killed. Yes. So what do I want you to do? Lie for me. Say lie, lie, lie. Say that. lie for me. So why? So be good for me. Yeah. And what's going to happen to Sar? I'll take her because she's a sister. She's available, I guess. She'll be taken. No, she'll be taken if she's the wife. Wait, wait, wait. She'll be taken either way. If Abraham is killed, she's available. They'll kill Abraham if she's married. And if she's a sister, they'll take her. Because she's available. And Abraham so will take get her either way. This doesn't protect her. But this way, he can still protect her. Just, it just seems to work for him. Yeah, he gives gifts. Is this what you would like your husband to tell you one day when you're walking in the middle of Harlem? <laughs> <laughs> she's beautiful, sure. She'd like that. <laughs> I mean, just reading it simply. Now, we know the custom of these uh, people in Egypt were that they would not take a married woman. So feigning religiosity never could be a terrible accident would happen to the husband. He would die. And now this woman is available to be taken. So what's Avram... What's his suggestion, oh brave Avram? And then you're not protected at all. What What are the, the two What are the two options? I mean, what What happens if you know you're walking down the dark street in Harlem, and five um, unsavory individuals jump upon your wife? What does the husband do? Try to protect. No, he says she's my sister. No, that's not going to help the situation. So what's Avram suggesting here? Say that you are my sister, and what's gonna, what is going to happen? They're going to take her. Yeah, but spare him. And spare him. Oh, what a chivalrous man he is. And of course, these are the first words. You'll learn a lot from the first words that a husband says to his wife. If this is the first time that the Torah is telling you, first of all, it's a double first time. It's the first time we hear something coming out of Avram's mouth. It's a dick. And the first time we're hearing a husband saying something to his wife. 
Now we've, we already know a golden rule. The first time sets the standard. Now, whatever, whatever we're going to say about Avram, who's a, a really great person on one level or another, and on many levels, he's a great person. I don't see such greatness in these words over here. Right? Couldn't we find something a little more uh, noble coming out of his mouth? I mean, when he, you know, a lot of things Avram did in his life, Torah doesn't even record, it doesn't say. How about when Avram had to stand up against his parents and smash on the idols? I'm sure he had some wonderful things to say. Sure, when he went against Nimrod and was thrown into the fiery furnace, he had a number of wonderful things to say. In his marriage to Sari, he must have had something better to say than this. Yet the Torah is saying, this is going to tell you everything you need to know about Avram. And number two, it's going to tell you everything you need to know about marriage. What the problem is doesn't sound very good right now. Okay, would you all see the problem here? If we don't see a problem, there's no interest in continuing the class. It it should really, you know, imagine if a secular person lifted this off the page and showed you this, what would you answer to them? This is a very different... Now, the the least he should have done is, is tell the truth. She's my wife, and keep your hands off of her. I'll stand up for her until you kill me. Until, I, until you kill me, I'm going to be looking after her. That's right. Yeah. Well, it, you know, till death do us part. Yeah. I mean, what would, what would you rather have, ladies? You know, when the five guys are coming, you at least want the husband, even if he loses, at least he, he's fought yeah, back. Yeah. No, you could have her. We make, well, let's make a little deal. Take my wife, please. How much money can I get out of this? Cheap, cheap. Okay, this, this is a very, very difficult question. Very difficult. We've been learning this for years and years and years. How do we deal with this? Okay, there's another issue. We put it in the pink. Uh, it says, Hine no. Behold now. I know that she is a beautiful woman. What do you mean behold now? So Rashi, uh, doesn't she know? That's also an interesting thing. First thing a husband says to his wife, and they're married like about, uh, let's guess about 50 years, 60 years. Oh, you know, you're really good looking. Uh, Where have you been till now? And only and only because you're good looking, I got problems now. So we'll just uh, lie about you. So the Rashi brings three interpretations in source number two. He brings from the Medrash number one. Until now, he had not perceived her beauty, owing to the extreme modesty of both of them. In other words, he never knew what his wife looked like. And there's a little. You have to fill in the blanks here. And how did he find out she was beautiful? As we're going to Egypt, they had to wash themselves up or get a little drink of water. So he accidentally saw the reflection of Sarah. And he sees she's a beautiful woman. <coughs> ah! and she's I never knew you were so beautiful. Or something like that 
So there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah. Do you mean to say he never, he was so modest, he never looked at his wife? And if you never, and second, he's violating a halacha in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch says a man may not marry his wife until he first sees her. Yeah. Because if he doesn't see her, and then after the wedding, he might, ooh, you're ugly. Uh, let's get out, I'm gonna get out of this marriage. How does that work with Yaakov, though? He married, he married um, Leah, wasn't her face covered? Well, he thought it was Rachel. That's but he didn't see who he was. But he wasn't. He was deceived. He didn't initially do that. That's why he was upset with Lavan. Lavan's a sneaky, tricky guy. He saw Rachel. He looked at Rachel. He knew what Rachel looked like, and he thought he's marrying Rachel. So that's why he was upset. But here, Avram, no one's cheating him. What do you mean? Don't you look? Don't you look at your wife? But Rabbi, you're talking about the physical here. Perhaps another question is how he looks at her. Maybe he really didn't focus on her physical attributes and more on her. Uh, on her, on her okay, so do you mean to say? Do you mean to say he never looked at her physical beauty? Maybe he didn't look at other women. So what does that have to do with anything? So he he wasn't comparing. You would know how beautiful somebody is if you compare. That's an ugly person. So did wow. he have a bag over his head his whole life? <laughs> well, no, he wasn't. Maybe maybe what compared to what he saw. He never saw his mother. But you wouldn't look he, at your mom that way. Well, so. Nor did he start looking. And how would he know now if she's beautiful? Because he started looking. Wait a minute. How would he, if he's still not looking at other women, so how does he know now? Because he maybe saw the reaction of how other people, how they were looking at her. Yeah. He didn't see it. They, they didn't see anybody yet. There's nobody in the story so yet. There's nobody in the story yet. It's difficult to rush. Unless he said it for the reason for give her let her know that she's beautiful rather than him. So I guess he never ever told her she's beautiful? Which is not recorded. Okay, that's one interpretation. We got some challenges. Another one is, usually when you're on the road, you start, you don't look so nice. Take a road trip, and you and your wife in the car for eight, nine hours with a bunch of little kids, and it's hot, the air conditioning breaks down. So when you get out of the car, your wife's not going to look as beautiful as if she's preparing to go to a wedding. And you got the wind, arid land, and all that. She says, wow, that's really amazing that you're still beautiful even in the desert like this. Okay. And... But that's, the, not what this, that's not what the Pasuk says. Well, it says, behold, now, yeah. now I know that you're a beautiful you woman. Time, right? I mean, right now, I always knew you were a beautiful woman, but now you're still a beautiful woman. Even with this bad weather. And then he brings the third interpretation. Uh, where, where, where is it? Did I not copy it down? Oh, so then he says, and the simple meaning of the text is, now I'm anxious of your beauty. In other words, I always knew you were beauty. But now we're amongst repulsive people who've never seen a beautiful woman. And now we're going to have problems. These are the three interpretations of Rashi. And uh, these are the ones that when I taught grade, uh, well, when you teach grade two, that's you tell them the three pshatim. Okay? So 
again, the first one's a really difficult one to understand. The second one seems, but, but obviously the issue is you are beautiful and now we have to deal with it. So in other words, now, now I know you're beautiful, meaning to say I always knew you're beautiful, but now there was an issue. Okay. Well, so, someone may have already said this, but is it because where he lived before that they didn't, they wouldn't take her, like like this these people would, so that that it wasn't an issue until they were amongst these Egyptians who would act that way. Um. And, well, that's what the third shot is really saying. Right. So that's what the third shot is saying. Okay. So it's it's not now now. I knew always you were beautiful, but where we used to live, it's not a problem. Ah, uh, okay. But now Egypt right. is a very lecherous country, so now it's a problem. It's not because they're repulsive, but because their natures are repulsive. Is that what it means? I thought that they were ugly, so they never saw someone as beautiful. No, well, they're, they're kind of... Um, it's not physical. They've never, no, black, black was never understood to be beautiful, remember. <laughs> that Noah cursed Canaan, and part of the curse is she but black, and black is not an attractive color. So the, the blacks are black, and now they sing a white woman, whoa, they're going to really be blown away by her beauty. That's real beauty. Right, so that's... So therefore we got a problem. So that's a different interpretation to, to they were just horrible kind of people. Well, it could be it's both, could be it's both, could be it's both. Okay. So the next... They went to Egypt, not Ethiopia, right? I'm sorry? They went to Egypt. Egypt is Mitzrayim, not... Yes. He's just giving... But they're descendants of Ethiopians. They're descendants of, of Kush and, 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 and what do you call it? And, no, the four brothers, right? Cham, Kush, Cham, Cham. Yeah, that, that, but they're, they're black people and you're beautiful. It's going to be a problem. Okay, whichever shot you like. So now we go to what we call a medrash plia. Medrash plia means one of these real short to the point midrashim that are a wondrous statement that's very hard to understand. And this is one of them. On the words, Imri no achosiat, say that you are my sister, Mikan, from here we learn. If a person is very sick and the doctor says he has to have meat or he'll die, so and there's no meat, you could shech the animal on Shabbos and feed it to him and this. From here we see this. I'd like to see further. So, so the question is, what does one thing have to do with the other? Say that you're my sister, and from here we see that you can... You're allowed to lie. Because no one's lying. Your, well, he's not saying he's his wife. So say that you're my sister. You're she allowed to shut an animal. If his life is in danger, he can lie. But this is his sister. She's a sister. Okay, so let's let's say that a little, a, a little bit more it's to the point. In other words, in other this. words, sometimes why don't why don't you let's say a person is sick? Why do you do anything? Just believe in God will heal him. Why should I do anything? The answer is you don't rely on a miracle, right? Oh, so Avram also, he had to come up with tricks. He couldn't just say, she's my wife, because now, you know, you're going to get killed. 
So you got to come up with some tricks to save your life. There's only to save Abraham. It's not worried about Sarah. No, that's not true. You have a better way of saving Sarah if you if she's a sister. You still have a better chance. Why? They'll be going after your sister, and then they'll know the brother. It's a very different approach. The husband. They whatever, get... whatever. We we could debate that, but that's what it seems to be the intent of this medrash that Avram resorted to tricks and didn't just rely on believing in Hashem. And therefore, a sick person, you don't rely on a miracle, and you have to do something to deal with that. That would seem to be the, the simple way of understanding this. Except the tells you to do that. Well, Right, maybe, the tells you to, to heal the well, sick on Shabbos. Okay, so maybe we know that from the story of Avram. Oh, okay. But uh, there is questions on this message, because it should have said straight, from here we learn you don't rely on a miracle. Yeah, Just say straight to the point. From here we learn you don't rely on a miracle. Yeah. Okay. So others say, well, you know what we learned from here? That you're allowed to do something wrong to save somebody else. Like if you're sick, so you be Michal Shabbos and sacrifice the animal. Why do I have to have another guy do it? So the answer is you can desecrate to help somebody else. So Sarah is lying to save somebody else. That's another interesting shot. But the real problem with this whole thing is, why do we pick a case of slaughtering an animal? Aren't there other Averos we could do? Why they pick a case of slaughtering an animal on Shabbos? You're allowed to light a fire. You could do a lot of things. So why are we picking this? Right? And... Uh, so we got to have to look a little deeper. Now, it, 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 it tangentially, I'm going to just bring this out now, and you're going to say, why is the rabbi telling us this? Well, if we get to the end of the class, maybe we'll find out. But there was an interesting question that was asked from the poskim based on this halacha, that you're allowed to shecht an animal on Shabbos, a kosher animal, shechted kosher, and now you're giving kosher meat to this Jew. So a question was asked from the early Rishonim in the medieval times. They asked a very simple question. That's the halacha. That's very simple. Look, don't you have a better solution? The guy has to eat meat. He has to eat it on Shabbos. I got a kosher animal. I'm going to shecht it. Now, normally, what's the punishment for slaughtering an animal on Shabbos if you don't need to? And you're warned. It's warning, yeah. It's chil Shabbos, chayv mis. Huh? So what are we doing? We're saying, even though you, you be, get the death penalty, but to save a life. Yeah, but don't we know that if you have to be Mechal Shabbos, don't you try to minimize it? Don't you try to minimize the sin? So how could we get this guy to have meat without another Jew desecrating the Shabbos? Good. Get it from an Anjan. What? Get it from an Anjan. So what, what, what would that entail? Just play it out. First and six, what are you going to do, Paul? You're going to... Tell me the steps. It's a live animal. Like, you can't check it before. You don't know before he's, that he needs it. It's 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 Shabbos now. He, he got sick. Doctor Hero. He has to have. Okay, some, so I mean, even a trait animal. You, you get the non-Jew. So, so what do you do? What do you non-Jew do? To, to you knock on the non-Jew's meat. door. Say hello, Mister Non-Jew. And we need, we need meat for this sick person. And provide it. How? Kill the animal. Uh-huh. We'll eat. The, we'll eat. He'll eat it. And cook it also. We cook it, so yeah, cook it. So now it's in the veil. It's in the veil, but that's better than... So we're giving him treif. 
Yeah. What's the lach where you eat treif? On purpose, on purpose. No, um, no, remember, un, let's say on purpose, what's, comparing apples to apples. Shabbos, on purpose, you get death penalty. For a sick person, we let it go. So now, we're telling you to eat treif. What's the punishment for eating treif? You get a death penalty? No. No, you get lashes. So what's that mean? That eating treif is not as bad as desecrating the Shabbos. So the commentators ask, so why do we tell a Jew to shecht an animal? Why don't you just have a goy shechted and you, and you give him, it's not kosher, but it's less of a sin than, than being machal Shabbos. That's a great question. See, but then this relates to this medrash, sort of. Because the medrash says, from here you see you shecht an animal on Shabbos. So we could ask a question, well, what's that? So there's two answers. Right now, I'll just tell you what they are, and then at the end of the class, we'll see where this fits in. So the Ron gives a very simple answer. He says, you know what? Sometimes, if you do a small Avera many, many times, it's worse than a big Avera doing it once. And therefore, when you're going to give the, the trait to the sick person, he's, the first bite is an Avera, second bite is an Avera, third bite is an Avera. Every size he eats uh-huh. is an Avera. Slaying animals is one Avera. So if you're ready, you have to make exceptions. It's better to do one big Avera than a bunch of small ones. Okay, because when you do a bunch of small ones, it, it adds up. And it has calling, a more de- deleterious effect. Calling for a taxi is worse than driving because every time you step on That's the right. That's right. Unless you're going to get there faster by driving. Right, okay. That was one answer. Another answer brought by the name of the rush is amazing. If you go to the sick person and you tell him one of two things. You tell him, here, I got meat for you. I shechted it on Shabbos. It's kosher meat. Here it is. So I really feel bad that you had to be Machal Shabbos, but okay, thanks a lot. I'm gonna eat it. Go to the guy and say, here, it's treif. Eat it. This is less like eat What's it. the guy gonna say? No. Because I never ate treif my whole life and I ain't starting now. So in other words, the sick person will not eat the treif. Especially when my life's in God's but, hands, I don't eat. But if, but if you told him, I, I did the aver. I shot, well, you shecht an animal on Shabbos, it is still kosher. And the damage is done. Damage is done. Yeah. And uh, so therefore, since the guy would be repulsed by that, mm-hmm. so therefore, okay. So we'll just put that to the side. Just put that to the side. But it all relates to this. It all comes from this story. Say that you are my sister. Say that you are my sister. From here, it seems we're saying that we slaughter the animal instead of giving treif. Okay, is there some deeper insight that we could learn from this? Okay, so let's, uh, let's dig in over here. And there's like so much information. I was having a little trouble doing my normal processing things in a very uh, masuda fashion. So... Uh, hopefully Hashem will help me that I'll get this on the right track over here. So let's go back and look at another interpretation about Avram. And what is exactly, what can we say about this situation that Avram is in? What's unique about this situation than any other situation he's had in his life? It's pretty... It'll be hard for you to know. 
because you'd have to really think a lot of all these situations. So let us share with you an idea of the Baal Shem Tov and a number of other ideas that we'll get over here. And he gives a, a, new, a Hasidic interpretation of, behold, now I know that you are a beautiful woman. And he's, he's telling us all what Rashi has to say. And now we have to worry about it. And now I notice you're a beautiful woman. Okay. The truth of the matter is, Avram Avinu was an incredible child. And he was so distant from lust in this world. That wasn't him at all. And how did he look at Sarah? How does a tzaddik look at Sarah? Certainly, he looked at Sarah and certainly saw that she had beauty. There's no question about it. But how did he view her beauty? How did he view her beauty? What do you do if you have a beautiful wife or a handsome husband? How do you view the handsome husband? How do you view the beautiful wife if you are a righteous person? Do you say that that person has inherent beauty? And, oh, I love her because of the beauty that she has. Talk about physical beauty now. Now, we could say, you could say, oh, man, I got, my wife is a knockout. She's unbelievable. Oh, my husband, he's a, what's the male hunk, version of that? Hunk, a, hunk. a hunk, whatever. <laughs> he's like really dashing, debonair, and this and that. And, and, and he really, I hate to use these, uh, I shouldn't use these terms. He really turns me on. That used to be the expression, right? You turned me on. That was like, I think, an 80s, 70s, 60s expression. <laughs> but, you know, whatever it is. You know, that, that's one way of looking at it. And if it's a husband and wife, there's nothing sinful about that. I mean, but Avram understood that everything that you see is just a manifestation of Hashem. So when he looked at Sarah's beauty, he saw God's beauty. And what really, what he interpreted is that the beauty that this woman has is a gift that God gave her. And I'm seeing a manifestation of God's beauty in this world, in this person. So which is a much more objective um, view of her beauty as opposed to a subjective view of her beauty. And therefore, the fact that she was beautiful is just another, and since he had a very intense relationship with Hashem, so looking at his wife provides him with a lot of uh, gratitude to Hashem and love to Hashem, and realizing that the beauty of Sarah doesn't come from Sarah, it comes from the divine. And that's a very wonderful gift that he had. And... uh, so he clearly knew always she was a beautiful woman. That already answers some early questions. How do you marry a woman if you haven't seen her? He clearly saw her. And he clearly viewed her as a manifestation of God's blessings into this world. Okay. So what is this realization? Oh, so now, now that he comes, he comes down to Egypt. He says, you know, this is the first time I'm looking at you in a bit of a sensual way. You know, he's, he's saying, whoa. This is now much more subjective. And even though it's his wife, he's saying, 
you know, you, you really are beautiful. And again, I hate to use these words, but you're turning me on. Okay. So he's saying, now this is a problem. This is a problem. And why am I, why am I feeling this way? Is it because he's in such a negative place? Is that oh, so the Baal Shem Tov says, it must be the environment is playing a role on us. And when you're in the environment, you know, we talk about the klipas. Remember the klipas, the shells? We talked a lot about that last year. When, when there's beauty, but the shell says the beauty's disconnected from us. And now he's beginning to see and uh, using terms that normally would not yefat mareat. That's uh, regular terms of real physical beauty. Did the Torah ever tell us the beauty of any women up to this point in time? Say Chava was beautiful. No. As a husband is is saying you're 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 really beautiful. You you are beautiful. Although in Gan Eden when. They ate, then all of a sudden there was this nakedness issue. So they were also in a different environment than they were before once they ate. Okay, fine. But I'm just saying, but here we're having a really sensual description of a woman. Yifat mara'at. You you are beautiful. Now, if until now he would have said, there's beauty to be beheld, but not that you're beautiful. To say that you're beautiful, whoa, that's you. You're beautiful. It's not Hashem's manifestation of beauty in you. He could have just said, but no, you, you are the beautiful one. So why am I thinking this way? And this is a major problem. What has happened to me? Now, once things happen to me, now I'm I'm in big danger. I'm in big danger because a tzaddik always knows that he is always walking with Hakadosh Baruch Hu. When you're walking with Hakadosh Baruch Hu, you see things in a different light. If everything is a manifestation of Hashem, you have nothing to be afraid of. And there's a lot to say about. But what what we're trying to bring out is the Torah is clearly telling us, according to the Baal Shem Tov that Avram is in a compromised spiritual state right now. How he got to that compromised spiritual state can be because he is coming into the Egyptian environs. Now, it's interesting. Didn't he know? Here's a question. Didn't he know that Egypt was a hotbed of immorality? So why did he think to go there in the beginning? Maybe he thought he'd be, he wouldn't be affected by that. Ah, maybe he thought he wouldn't be affected. But guess what? He was affected. Like Shlomo Melech. And he, was, he was affected. But also, Hashem told him to go there, right? No, the no. exact opposite. Hashem told him to leave his birthplace and to go to Eretz Yisrael. Yeah, for me, this is the but now, so Hashem said, go to the place I will show you. Then he steps in, he's, he's, he's in a certain part in Eretz Yisrael. Hashem says, here it is. This is the spot. This is the spot. Then there's a famine. Now, then Avram on his own chooses to go to Mitzrayim. And Ramban says on this point that you should know that Avram did a great unintentional sin. A great unintentional 
a great sin, but was unintentional. Okay. And what was the sin, basically? A lack of faith in God. Yeah. A lack of faith in God, because God tells you where to go. He says, go until the place I will show you. And now he showed it to him. Okay, now there's a hunger. So now what should Avram do? Put. Stay put. Well, we're running out of food. Well, God will tell you if it's time to leave. He didn't give me any further instructions. Two situations where he goes down to his baser instincts regarding food and now regarding the physicality. Ah, ah, ah. So the question is okay, there's a lot to talk about, but the Ramban clearly says, he says, uh, he, he says, when he left Eretz Yisrael, because that is a sin, because Hashem could save him and just bring him food. And, and God will do a miracle for such a person. Now, he said it was unintentional. And there's a lot we can discuss on this. Because, you know, what really brought it? Some suggest he could have held on, but not his family and friends. You mean with the hunger? With the hunger. He said, we're going to stay. But you know what? I, I could say that for me. I don't know if, if, if Lot and the other characters are going to... All the people I was Makarov, I don't know if they have such a level of Amuna, so maybe we'll have to go. But, okay, so that maybe could have given the rationale to go. But still, if you really trusted Hashem, they would learn from you and they would change too. You can't say that the famine was a sign that Hashem wanted them to leave? If Hashem wanted to leave, he would have told him. He told him to go. So if he would want him to leave, he would tell him to leave. We're so used to so, so, it, so it appears that Avram makes a huge mistake. Now, here's a very interesting thing. How could you say that about Avram? <laughs> the answer is, he's human. <laughs> and he can make a mistake. Now, there's a lot more to all these mistakes over here. If you remember, a, a number of years ago, I gave a whole class on describing how Avram failed every one of his 10 tests, a very controversial class. And I was debating to give it again, but I saw I gave it two years ago, so I don't give it that often to repeat it. But anyway... We would have failed the test if you'd asked us. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, but to show you that he still tried and this and that, but anyway, he is now in a low point. Yeah, he went down... He, he has been failing. Now... Again, it's not the kind of failing me and you would fail. I mean, there's all kinds of calculations. It's not Stam, I don't believe in God. He believes in God plenty, but on his level of belief, Ramban said he did a big sin, and that's why we end up in Egypt, because of that. Be that as it may, but you see what happens. He lost a little, a little bit of faith, but once you start losing the faith, then your perception of reality changes. And now he's saying, what's the real problem here? The real problem is, how am I going to be able, now that I don't have my faith in God the way I should have it, and now that my perception is such, now I'm in serious trouble, because what is going to happen? I'm not going to have Hashem's protection anymore. Without Hashem's protection, I'm big. He, he, he couldn't see the consequences of his mistake until this point. When he made the mistake and left for Egypt, he thought he was doing the right thing. <coughs> but all of a sudden, when he began to see the consequences of this, he figured he's going to go to Egypt, 
And uh, he's just going to say, you know, she's my wife and Hashem will take care of him. Hashem, Hashem will take care of him. That's it. Why shouldn't Hashem take care of him? He was, he got out of a fiery furnace already. So Hashem should take care of him. But also when he starts to see things in his wife that he never saw before, that means my connection to Hashem has fallen. Hmm. And that's what he is. That's what the words are saying. He, as he gets close to Egypt, and now the energy of Egypt is is impacting. He said, "He says, behold, now I know that you are Yefas Mareot. That you are beautiful. You are bringing out sensual ideas in my mind that never happened before, and that means my connection to Hashem is not that good." So now, so now what do you do when you're in that position? Now there's another interesting word over here that has a lot of trouble. It says, kasher You see in the pink, the second verse. What does the word hikriv mean if you really know Hebrew? It's, 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 it's like when paro, it says kasher hikriv paro el Yisrael. It means to bring someone close. Now it should have said by Hikasher Karav, which should be when he came close to Egypt. That's not what it says. It said really the tr- exact translation is it was when he brought close to come to Egypt. What does that mean? What does it mean to come close? And it's the same words he grieved when Paro chased after the Jews in the desert before the splitting of the sea. It says that Paro. Brought the it didn't say power came close to the Jews. It says he brought the Jews close. What do you mean he brought the Jews close? He ran after them. The answer is he brought them close to Hashem because by chasing after them they prayed to God. So we see that he creed means to bring close. So what's Avram bringing close over here? What Avram is bringing close is he's got to bring himself close to God. In other words, what we're saying is like this. He's a hunger in the land. He's going down to Egypt. And right away, as he's going down to Egypt, in between the lines, before we come to the second one, Avram already sees things are not the way they're supposed to be. Are not the way they're supposed to be. So now, in the next Pasuk, he's going to talk to him. He's not going to say this until he feels this. So, there's a hunger in the land, and now he, he's, going, he's going down to Egypt. Now, as he's going down, okay, now he's beginning to see his wife in a whole different way. So the next puzzle says, and it was when he brought himself close. What does it mean he brought himself close? He's trying to bring himself close to God again. That's what it, he's, he's realizing he has, he's, 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 he's going down. He's, the connection. he's gotta do it. So now he's telling his wife, Listen what I'm going to tell you now. Behold, now I know that you're a beautiful woman and that's prima facie evidence that I've had a spiritual descent. And I have to do something to bring myself closer. So how am I going to do this? And look what kind of trouble I'm getting myself in now. You see, when you do things wrong, there's consequences. So what's the consequence? When the Egyptians are going to see you, they're going to say, oh, that's his wife. They're going to kill me and take you. 
And I got myself in a big mess. You follow? Mm-hmm. This is exactly what the words are saying. Because otherwise, how do you translate the word he grieved? He brought himself close. How does he bring himself? He's trying to bring himself close as he's coming to Egypt. And he's proving to Sarah why, I've, why I have a problem. And now I'm talking to you about this. So what's the first thing this husband is telling his wife? He's sharing his spiritual challenges. And isn't that what an Azer Kenegdo is supposed to do? To hear he's expressing his problem with his wife and he's expressing the solution. And so that, doesn't help her anymore. Well, we still have a little bit more to go. <laughs> so he says, well, my, my, our, my, my connection is not strong. So Imrina, please say, and now there's a double meaning over here. There's certainly simple meaning of the pshat. Please, when they're going to ask you, say this. But in the context of what he's saying now, it's not, not just when they're going to come. Not when we get down there. Let's start saying it now. Imrina, say now, you are my sister. What does that mean, you are my sister? So let's take a look at source number four in so Mishle. Is he? And let, let me, I'll have to just, I gotta go a little further here. Okay, go ahead. He says, King Solomon says, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Now, what does that mean? Say to wisdom, you are my sister. In other words, what is really wisdom? There's only one wisdom in the world, God's wisdom. So what are we saying? Say to God, because God is his wisdom, right? Is there any difference between God and wisdom? Say to wisdom. There's only one wisdom, God's wisdom. Say to God, you are my sister. Is he trying to change his viewpoint on Sarah by saying, if you say to God, you're my sister, I will lose these, I will lose these thoughts about you? Well, that's the direction we're heading at right okay, now. If I lose so, those thoughts, I get closer. So to when, you, when you want to say, and, and we'll see, there is an understanding that uh, when we talk about a sister, the refer- there are many references that are calling Hashem our sister. Hmm. As you see in Shira Shirim, when it discusses the love relationship between Hashem and the Jewish people, so, so the allegory when the, when the handsome man is, it has his hand on the door and is trying to get in, but the, the girl is ready in bed. Hmm. He says, Peace, Julia, Achosi, open up for me, my sister, Rayosi, my wife, Yonasi, my twin, uh, my dove, my twin. So there is this idea of looking at Hashem as your sister. Imrina, please say, to what? When we talk to Hashem, that Achosiat, that you are my sister. He didn't say who to say it to. Did he say, please say to the Egyptians? No. Who's that say to the He may also say it to the Egyptians. But well, let's look at, uh, if, and if I'm feeling this way, I don't know, maybe you are feeling that, maybe you look at me as a handsome guy. I, I'm not going to blame you about anything. All I know is how I'm feeling. I'm feeling that I have been compromised spiritually. So, I'm suggesting you should say, and maybe I, and I also will say, but I, we have to be doing this together. 
I think Avram doesn't have to tell himself to say that. He has to tell his wife. He says, I'm not sure. All I know is I'm compromised. And I for sure am going to say that Hashem is my sister. I think maybe it's good if you say Hashem is your sister too because we both can be in trouble, big trouble. And when we're saying that you are my sister, and we'll talk more about what that means, it means we're going to bring back that connection to Hashem and then it will be good for me because of you and I will live because of you. We'll all be okay. This is how we're going to solve the issue. So it could very well be, and that's what she, they actually tell the Egyptian that they're sisters, but it's a much deeper understanding now. Yeah, you'll say you're my sister, but really you're talking to the Shekhinah that the Shekhinah is my sister, and now I'm getting close to Kaddish Baruch. Which and, will ultimately protect Sarah. But ultimately will protect, uh, will protect everybody. Right. And that's why the commentators talk a lot about this idea that you know there's two kinds of people that uh, have bitachon in Hashem. There are some people uh, who are alone are very firm believers. But also when you get with other people, all that belief kind of melts away in everything else that's going on in life. So what's the solution? You got to go back and make that connection. Or, uh, and therefore, he's, uh, some, uh, the uh, rabbis tell us, you know, how about when you go to work every day? In your house, you believe in Hashem. But now you go out into the work world, which is no worse than Mitzrayim. And doesn't it start to pollute the way we understand things? So guess what? Before you get in that place, say to God, you're my sister. And hold on to that connection. Or if let's say you want to have uh, somebody go down and save somebody in a very dangerous place, what do you do? You lower them down with a rope. Why? So there's a way to pull them back out. And we have to create a lifeline to connect us to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So Avram is, is, so my sister, my sister, the Zohar says, has two meanings. The first is literal and the second is figurative. Just okay, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Okay, and then, now we can understand, because I could have told you this Zohar about half an hour ago, but I say it be meaningless to you. The czar also discussed, well, how, how could he throw his wife to the wolves? So the czar says, just trying to find, quote it now. What happened to the other czar? I had another one. Anyway, the czar says he had nothing to fear because he saw the Shekhinah was with them. And if the Shekhinah is with them, there's nothing to worry about. Now, how could, this, how could Avram know he saw the Shekhinah with them? Yeah. The answer is because he reconnected. And once he reconnects, there's no problems. Sark do whatever she does. And now I can do the craziest thing. I could say, yep, she's my sister. You take her to the palace. Nothing's going to happen to her. Once I know I'm connected, once I'm saying Hashem is Achosiat, Hashem, you're my sister, nothing can happen. And look at the Higher of the Palace, and you see what happens. Hashem plagues Paro, and Avram becomes fabulously wealthy. And that's what Avram's saying. If we can hold on to this connection, then everything is going to work out for us. As indeed, that's exactly what happened. Okay. So now, so this becomes a very interesting point that he's saying. We're now in the very first words to Av- of Avram come out of his mouth is. Although I have failed and I'm in massive trouble, 
There's no reason to despair. As long as I reconnect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, everything's going to be fine. And a matter of fact, quite often Hashem puts us in these positions so that we will grow from these positions. You know, they give a marshal, if you trap a bird and then after he is caught and he's released, he flies better than before he was trapped. Why? Because when he's not trapped, he flies normal. But when he's trapped, he goes nuts. He flaps like I'm a sugarner. He's all cooped up. He, he's, he, he flaps like he never flapped before. And now he's learning what real flapping is. And now when he's released, he's going to flap faster than he ever flapped. And he's going to be an all-star uh, a bird flyer. Okay? So we got to realize that when we fall, it's all part of the divine plan. And Avram Avinu, as great as he was, and this explains another thing that we mentioned once in a Navi class. A lot of times we make mistakes. And many times we say to ourselves, you know, how could I do such a stupid thing? I just should have kept my mouth shut. How could I be so stupid? You know why? Hashem let you be stupid. Why? Because he plans on big things from you. Because you're going to grow from that mistake. And you would never have been as good as you are had you not made those mistakes. So Avram really makes a number of major mistakes. Major mistakes. What are some of the mistakes that he makes? Well, Hashem told him to leave. Everybody. Did he really follow that instruction? Mm -hmm. He took Lot with him. Hashem said, Lech lecha lecha Clean break. Of course you have to take your wife, your wife, your kids. Of course you have to take the people you were Makarov. But Lot wasn't anybody great. He's part of the family. And Avram, for some reason, took him. Why did he take him? Well, you know, Avram's a big Baal Chesed. He couldn't say no. He couldn't say no. But Hashem was saying, you got to say no. You have, you have to leave your father. You left your brother. What are you slapping your nephew for? So now, so now he makes a mistake. And he's got his nephew with him. How do we know it's a big mistake? Because only when Lot separates from him does Hashem talk to him again. Because as long as he was with a rush, Hashem couldn't talk to him. So, so let's see what's going on. Avram makes a mistake and he takes Lot along. So what does Hashem always do when you make a mistake? He tries to help you out. Now he can't hitch over the head and fix it up. He's got to, you got to come with it with your own mind. He makes a famine in the land. I want to say that's very interesting. Hashem tells me to come here, and there's a famine in the land. This don't make any sense. So Aram thinks, well, I guess what I got to do is go to Egypt. Hmm. Well, would God tell you to go to Egypt? No. So why would God make a famine? Just after Avram came. Did you ever wonder why? So he just wanted to test Avram. Hey. Well, of course he does. But why doesn't he? He tested him once already. How many times you got to test somebody? Because a lot of times when you test somebody and they, they do what you say, but they don't do it exactly as you say. So you haven't really passed the, the test yet. So I'm going to give you another test. You think Avram passed the test when he left home? No. Why is Lot with him? He thinks he passed the test. So I'm going to give him another test. Makes a hunger in the land. Now, what should Avram have done? 
does Ramban say? Should have stayed put. Why would Hashem do that? You know why? And I was afraid, well, no one's going to stay with me. Yeah, well, there's one guy I particularly don't want to have stay with you. That's Lot. If you would stay, he'd leave. So what'd you do? You left, and he left. <laughs> well, man, Hashem's trying to get Avram on the right direction. Avram keeps stumbling along. Do you follow what's going on over here? And Avram thinks he's doing the right thing, and he's not doing the right thing. Does that sound like us sometimes? <laughs> And now this is time. So now he's coming out to Egypt. All of a sudden, oh, look at that really good idea you did. Now you think your wife is. You look at her in a different way. And now you're in big trouble. You're in big trouble. So at least Avram realizes. Now he could have maybe just gone back. But he figures if I'm already in this situation, there must be something for me to learn. If I'm already in this slime pit of Egypt, there must be something for me to learn. And what he has to learn is he really now knows he's in big trouble. And as much as he was holding on to Hashem, and he certainly was, but never like he is going to now, because now the bird's going to really flap. Yes, even though he is thrown into a fiery furnace and other things, but this is much more, because now his spirituality has been compromised. So he says, I've got to hold on to my spirituality. And he holds on to his spirituality and he says, we got to be just connected to Hashem. And no matter how, how it looks like we're finished, we just got to stay connected to Hashem. And he grows in that. And you see what kind of wondrous results. He becomes a multimillionaire. Now, with all that happening, there's a lot of wonderful silver linings going on over here. First of all, when they go back from Egypt, they go back there to Israel, what's going to happen next? Well, Lot got rich. Avram got rich. They're so rich they can't live together. And then what happens? Lot leaves. <laughs> so what do you see? No matter how many mistakes you make, Hashem always gives you a way to correct it, even though you don't know what you're doing to correct. That was the original intent. Had Lot. That was the original intent. So Hashem. But when does he finally get rid of Lot? When he finally he has to connect to Hashem. The GPS is recalculating. That's recalculations. But there's a few other interesting things that are going on over here. What would have happened if he would have stayed and never went to Egypt? There's a one little sleeper here. In this whole story, you don't know about it till a few chapters later. Let's try to realize. What, Avram is with Lot. He's with Sarah. He's with his Kirov organization in Israel. Now there's a hunger in the land. Hashem really just wants him to get rid of Lot. But no, no, no. He takes him along. Okay, you make him. But you see, but Avram is a good soul. He really wants to do the right thing. And that's very important because Hashem takes that into lots of consideration. And then he pushes Avram right up against the wall and says, okay, I got the message. I got to totally connect you in the worst of situations. He says, okay, good things are going to start happening now. One thing is you're going to get rich and because that load's going to get out of here. But there's one other thing that happened. There's one other part and the story doesn't mention it now. It's, so it's like something that doesn't even appear to have happened. But it's so important, it's going to really change everything established a connection with Hashem? Well, he already has that. Yeah. But let's let's say he did not go anywhere. Let's say he never left. There never was a hunger. Oh, 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 one other thing. The fact that he went down there was a hunger means he was very poor, right? right? Now, Avram always did kindness, right? But kindness from what perspective? From a wealthy man's perspective. A wealthy man can never know what real kindness is because he's never been poor. 
You can never put yourself in the poor man's shoes. No matter how much you want to empathize, it's not possible. You don't know what it means to have a hungry stomach. You could try and you give money and it's wonderful, but it's, it's no fault of the rich man. If you're born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you don't know what hunger tastes like. So what does Hashem do? He makes a hunger. Avram has, decides to leave and he becomes poor. By becoming poor, and then he becomes rich, now he can do chesed in ways he never could do before. So you see all these, you make mistakes, and then you get yourself in trouble, but Hashem saying, but I haven't let go of you, and don't let go of me, and you, we're going to grow through your falling. Had he not made these mistakes, he would have stayed as well, and rich guy would never really know how to do chesed in the divine way. So therefore, the falls are things to not be scared about. And really, if you hold on to Hashem, He's going to help you see the ways that you're, you're meant to grow from this. But there's one other thing. Would him and Sarah really ever have had kids? They were never destined to have children. What did they ultimately do that got them the kids? Changed their identities? They changed their names? That's a few things they did, but there was something else. They moved to the hotter place. Not, not, not only they did it, Rachel did it, Leah did it. What did, what did uh, uh, Sarah say to Avram? You know, why don't you marry Hagar? Maybe you'll marry Hagar, she'll have kids, and I'll be blessed to have kids in that merit. Correct? Who's this Hagar? Who is Hagar? You're not going to hear about her for a couple chapters. She was Egyptian princess. Oh, she was an Egyptian princess? And where, and where did she live? Where did she live? Where did she live? Egypt. And if he would not have left Israel, he would never have met Hagar. And then... And then it was, but where was the opportunity coming from? Because it went down to Egypt. You see what kind of sleeper this is? See, all the mistakes you made were all ways that Hashem will bring out greatness in you. But the trick is, Say you are my sister. Now, what's the real greatness of Avram? The greatness of a leader is not when things are going good. It's when they're really going bad. And bad as bad can be. He's spiritually suffering, physically suffering. Everything is going down the drain. And Avram, the first Jew, is telling what every Jew has to always say, to realize where you're, when you're falling, to have the cognition to know, I've messed up, and this is how I'm going to get myself back together. Because if you can't do that, you're never going to be an eternal people. There's nothing to learn about successful people when they're successful. Only to learn when successful people are failures and how they rebound. That's what makes an eternal people. And that's the first words that Avram says. But let's take it a step further and uh, talk about marriage. What's the difference between a sibling relationship and a spousal relationship? You see, what's happening over here, we know, there's two things. There's a relationship between us and Hashem, and sometimes between us and Hashem, it's a wife, sometimes it's a sister. That's what it said in Shirashiri. 
And in this marriage, what Avram is really saying is, you know what? Let's not look at ourselves like a husband and wife. Let's look at ourselves as a brother and a sister. That's another message. There's so many messages here, so many layers here. Avram's trying to understand his relationship with Hashem. And it's supposed to be like a husband and wife. That's the real most intense relationship. But someone's got to be like a sister. And there are those who suggest when they teach Kala classes and Chassan classes that when you're in the time you have to be separated, that's when you have to be brother and sister and not husband and wife. So what is this idea? So very briefly, a spouse you choose, siblings you don't. Your connection with your siblings is natural and innate. The bond between them is constant and immutable. Whether you love your brothers or sisters or not, they're always going to be your brothers. You're always going to have the same genes, the same culture, the same soul connection, DNA, whatever. On the other hand, the bond between a spouse is subject to change and fluctuations. Today you're married, but a year from now you could be divorced. You know, yet paradoxically, the love of a sibling, even at its best, imagine you love your sister so much, is still what we would call calm. While the love of a spouse is capable of being fiery and passionate, you're never going to get that with a sister or brother. Because the love of a sibling is inborn and natural, it can never die, but we also don't get too excited about it. Mm. It's part of who we are. It's not meant negative. It's just the way it is. The love of a spouse is something that's created as a result of two separate individuals coming together at a later stage in life. And the fact that they're so different as opposed to the same gives a lot of intensity and drama to this relationship. Feelings that could never be forged with a close bond of siblings. That's why the Torah does not allow you to marry close relatives. For this reason. Because you already are bound with them. Okay? And the, that same quality of how great marriage could be is the same reason why so many marriages are short-lived. Because passion can flourish and passion can fade away. And when the marriage does fail, what's the way of holding on to it? You've got to fall back on that innate bond that exists between family members. And all. They're always there for you. What happens when you get divorced? <laughs> you go to your sister, you go to your brother. Right. Now, the story of Avram and Sarah is, is very allegorical for sure. Now, Avram's living in the Holy Land. So what does that mean? What's, what's the symbol, symbol of that? Oh, that's a psychological state of serenity and spirituality. He is her husband and she is his wife. They care for each other. They look out for each other as only a husband and a wife can. There's passion. There's everything. Those are the days you get up in the morning and you say, thank you, Hashem, for giving me such a special person in my life. But then a famine can erupt, starving your heart and dulling your senses. And you end up in Egypt. And what do you know Egypt means? We try means, made certain constraints and limitations. All of a sudden, the passion for your spouse as barriers are constructed. Oh, I can't love her like I used to. Right? And then at those moments, you've got to remember that your wife, in essence, really is also a sister 
and that her husband is also a brother, even if you don't feel the connection, you are innately connected. Even if you don't experience the romance consciously, you are still linked. Why? Because you know, really, before you came down to the world, you were really a half soul. So really, in a way, you were Siamese twins. You were really brother and sister. But now when you come to this world, you forgot about that. And they're totally separate entities that you're having a relationship with these people. So the fact that you think you're separated, it allows you to have great feelings for this person. You crave for this person. This person is different and we create so much together. But then when it's not so great, you better fall back and know she's still your sister. Now that's the relationship between us and Hashem. Between us and Hashem is a marriage, but also like sister and brother. You see? It's the same thing. Same between us and Hashem. It's a marriage. That's why Hashem says, you're my, you're my sister, you're my spouse. Because innately, the bond can never be severed, but it appears it's severed, so I make free will choice, and I decide, and I can have a much more passionate relationship with Hashem. But when things sour, well, sometimes you sour, so you always got to remember, well, hang on, baby, you still are brother and sister. And what Averman started teaching us is that we're in a relationship. Now, here's what it really, the first thing about marriage is. The first thing you say is, no matter how bad it is, you're always going to be my sister. And if you make a commitment, you're always going to be my sister. No matter how bad, we'll never separate. And that's the first words you say in the Torah about a married husband and wife. And that's the way you say married. And that's what Avram Sarah taught us. When a relationship becomes challenging and you think you cease to be a husband and wife, maybe temporarily, but at least be a brother and a sister, fall back on that innate connection that is there. And that's what and that's the key to survival at those moments in life. That when sometimes Hashem's not your spouse, but it's your sibling. And you gotta remember that you know when you are holy, and it's not only when you feel you're holy, but you have to know that you're essentially holy. And that's because you're essentially connected to Akadish Baruch. So when the Russian winter threatens to freeze our souls. Trying to recall the warmth provided by Hashem as a member of the family. It's time to remember that intrinsic blood bond existing between you and your siblings. And how do we get back to this idea? And from saying, sister, now we know you give, you shech the animal on Shabbos. Remember, I didn't want to forget that. Because you know what? Why do we shech? The question is, why don't we give him treif? Why do we shech? Why don't we give him treif? The answer is, because a Jew will never eat treif. The innate bond, no matter what, he'll never eat treif. No matter what, he'll never eat treif. You're my sister. Hashem, I'll never let go of you. No matter how much it would seem easier, but I, I just can't bring myself to eat treif. I just can't bring myself to be disloyal to you, Hashem, because you are my sister. I can't be disloyal to you, my dear wife, because you're even, even, I don't like, love you as a wife, I love you as a sister, and I'm always going to be connected to you as a sister. That's why you shech the animal on Shabbos. You don't give treif, because the signal will never eat treif. Because we cannot deny it with our connections. Okay, we got it all in, and it's 9.15.